Medical Monday is proudly brought to you with the compliments of Discam. Pharmacists to care. And good morning to you. My name is Kathy Kayla. Thank you so much for joining me. And uh, I'll be your host for the next hour on this Discam Medical Monday. Now, uh, this is a space really where we speak to the top experts in health, in mental health, physical health, professors, you know, really the thought leaders who can take health issues and you know, we can understand it and we can understand it well. So uh, I've invited into studio uh, Dr. Savani Pather. She's from uh, Akiso Clinics. That's where she practices. Akiso are mental health clinics. And we're talking about eating disorders. Now, there are lots and lots of different types of eating disorders. You know, we'll speak about some of the rarer ones, but really the two main ones that... uh, and I believe are actually in categories of their own, are bulimia and anorexia. And it seems today that so many people, I think it was just, uh, I can't remember her name now, from the Pussycat Dolls, just last week she came out and was talking about her her bulimia. You know, I mean, very famous, uh, the late Princess Diana. She also had uh, bulimia, you know, and it seemed to be during times of high stress in her life. So what is the relationship between our lifestyles and eating and eating disorders? So, uh, yeah, we're going to be talking about that. Love to hear from you. If you've got any questions, if you want to weigh in um, on the topic of eating disorders, then please do so. And this is how you do it. You can send a text to 34519 or you can send a WhatsApp message, either a text or a voice note, on 062-148-2374. And on that note, welcome Dr. Partha. How are you? Hi, thank you for having me back. It's so um, nice well. that we didn't scare you off the first time. <laughs> <laughs> You're quite brave, clearly. <laughs> no, didn't. How common are eating disorders? In the context of psychiatric disorders, they're not as common as depression or bipolar disorder or anxiety disorders. But the actual prevalence is underestimated because often these individuals are not help-seeking. So uh, the rates that we have are based on studies done where we'd look at an eating disorder unit and look at the prevalence rate in a certain setting. So although they're not common as compared to other psychiatric disorders, they have very high rates of morbidity and mortality and are often lifelong illnesses and battles. But it's a battle between life and death in the case of anorexia nervosa especially. So they have very high rates of medical complications and needing quite a lot of care and treatment in order to treat the eating disorder. Okay, so I've got to now think about what it was (laughs) that you just said. Because, uh, okay, so as I'm understanding what you just said, is that a lot of people who have the disorders, either anorexia or bulimia, do not seek help for it. So it could be something that's completely silent. Yes. And nobody knows about it. Yes. And that actually leads to death. Is that correct? Yes. The nature of the disorder is to keep silent about it and to hide it. Um, And it's often a parent, a caregiver, a family member or a friend who will then be dragging the patient along to hospital or to a doctor for help. And often it's when the patient or the the 
when the individual has lost a great deal of weight. And so now they're needing medical intervention because they've lost weight or they're needing medical intervention because of the length of their illness having caused com medical complications that need treatment. So that's often how they arrive at a psychiatrist once they've seen a physician or a GP who's trying to help stabilize them medically. All right. So that's obviously with anorexia. Mm. But it's a lot of people, from what I can ascertain, um, with bulimia appear healthy and they appear to have a like very healthy uh, body weight, not uh, necessarily skinny. No, that's a major difference between anorexia and bulimia, although there are two types of anorexia, which is the restricting type and then the binge purge type, is that anorexics are, when, when we think of eating disorders, we have this image of this skeletal-looking woman who's an who is an, an anorexic um, and a chronic anorexic who's really literally skin and bone, um, very far below the normal healthy weight, and a bulimic is usually of normal weight or slightly overweight. And that's often because they don't restrict as continually as the anorexics do. And the, the nature of bulimia is the binges that they have at least once or twice a week, followed by the purging behavior. And so the purging behavior does not, and that's compensatory behavior, to try to get rid of some of the calories that they have taken in during the, the binge. And that might not always be effective. And that's why they don't then lose large amounts of weight as opposed to the anorexic who is restricting and not taking enough in. Okay, so you've confused me completely <laughs> because in my mind as the lay person, Anorexia is basically when you starve yourself. Yes. You do not take in the food. Yes, that's the restricting behavior. Okay. Bulimia is where you eat and purge and eat and purge. But you've said that anorexia has two different types mm. of anorexia. One is the restricting type and the other is the purge type. The binge purge type. But would that not be bulimia? Well, it's not bulimia because... And in anorexia, there has been a massive weight loss and a refusal to maintain a normal body weight, which you don't find in bulimia. Apart from that, there's restriction, which goes on all of the time, and the compensatory behavior, because the perception is that you have to be super skinny and um, a cognitive distortion that the person who is actually so wasted and so incredibly thin, seeing themselves in the mirror as actually not even being of normal weight, but fat. So because they're restricting all of the time and engaging in compensatory behavior like exercising, abusing laxatives, abusing diuretics, in and, and, and the purpose of that is to continually lose the weight – their intake of food all of the time is very, very low. But at points, they might, if they have the binge purge type, slip. Because it's really hard. These are individuals who are very rigid when, in, in terms of anorexics. It's really hard to starve yourself all of the time. And at some point, the category of anorexics that fall into the binge purge type slip. And because they are now not restricting and... and basically starving themselves, they slip and for them, they then they've been starving their bodies 
then indulge in a binge. So a binge is in a very short period of time consuming food that a normal person would not in that amount of time be able to eat. There's a vast amount of food. There's a sense of loss of control during that duration. And within anorexic, control is part of the crux of the illness, being in control of what you put into your body. So during the binge, there's this momentary loss of control. They binge, they overeat, and they often eat foods that they would never allow themselves to eat as part of their illness, like carbohydrates and very soft, sweet food. That's also very easy to swallow because a binge is, a short, is during a short period of time. They then obviously feel huge amounts of guilt. Because you're talking about a binge, you, a binge being not a slice of cake, the no, entire the cake. the entire cake. It's yeah. stockpiling food and putting them all together within a two-hour period, eat, consuming vast amounts of food, probably half of the contents of the cupboard of, in the kitchen um, to get in as much. And, and it's not even feeling full because you've lost a sense of control. It's just getting the food into you because when you've been starving yourself for huge periods of time, at some point, and remember anorexics are always thinking about food. They're obsessed with food. So the restricting behavior is not because they don't think of food or there's no appetite. They have an appetite. They're starving themselves. They would love to eat a slice of cake, but for them that's not acceptable. But during a, a binge, when they give up this control for that short period of time, then they eat whatever, they, whatever it is that's in front of them. And it's, it's often bizarre things that they would also eat. Why is well, why are anorexia and bulimia referred to as illnesses? Well, they're, they're psychiatric illnesses, but there's a huge psychological component to it, which is why the treatment is a combination of, psychi of psychiatric intervention as well as psychological intervention. Um, but it's, it's really that there are very clear cognitive distortions um, that are found within the anorexic community of patients and the bulimic population as well. And they're slightly different to each other, but it's very similar principles with the obsession of losing weight, needing to be thin, over-idealization of thinness and the body image. And so they are these specific characteristics that occur within this group of individuals. That's very different from the normal population. We're all, we all go through phases where we're dissatisfied with what we look like. And uh, when we look in the mirror, there's something that we don't like. And that, that's human nature. But with these individuals, it is extreme. It's not logical. And where often, does it come from? Well, where does it come from? Um, I'm trying to understand, you know, what is the impact of society and the media on a condition um, like anorexia or bulimia? Well, the impact of society is huge, but we can... I mean, does that drive it? It's part of the problem. So if we look at the causes, with all psychiatric conditions, there's the genes and the biological component as well as the environment, um, which includes... the. So the genes are what you've inherited. So if you look at studies of families and twin studies, you find that amongst identical twins, you have higher rates of eating disorders as opposed to non-identical twins. Um, and the basis of genetic inheritability in, in eating disorders is not as strong as other psychiatric illnesses. The larger component of how your family affects 
how you view food and your body image is the psychological component and family relationships, the relationship with your parents, with siblings, and then in the greater context, society. So the there's the role that media plays, but then the society that you live in plays. Uh, your actual community. Your community, the greater society, because the value of thinness is not something that's held equally um highly in different cultures in different cultures right which is why your rates of anorexia and bulimia are differ between different cultures and different groups of people um, so what you're saying is that it might actually be higher in the west it's than it is here on the african continent yes so the western um influence uh, and a- in asia as well so amongst the western population and an asian population you have higher rates of eating disorders as opposed to an african Population because in, in yeah, when you've got some meat on you, I mean that that shows wealth. It shows that you're eating well. It shows that you're fertile. There's there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of benefits and to it, carrying some weight. Yes, and in the South African context where we have high rates of HIV, thinness that is associated with the wasting illness associated with the HIV virus is stigmatized, and so being thin is not is not necessarily valued. So how does South Africa compare? Um, in terms of uh, population statistics for anorexia with Western countries like the, like the northern United States, um, you know, North America, um, you know, the, the, West, the West, Europe. Unfortunately, we don't have epidemiological studies that have been done in South Africa. So we're lacking the actual figures in terms of an evidence-based based on studies. But if we look at certain, like we've said, certain um, communities of individuals and the differences between uh, your culture and, and the food culture as well, they're comparable with North America and and studies in Europe as well, but obviously not across the board. We seriously need to get on top of our research so that we can learn about the South African population, not only in terms of, uh, you know, anorexia and bulimia, but we don't have statistics for cancer. We don't have statistics for diabetes. We don't have the most basic, basic statistics, never mind our cultural impressions, you know what I mean, or our outlook. We don't know about each other. That's so true, and that's why awareness is, is so important, and um, disorders like eating disorders sometimes fall by the wayside. So other psychiatric conditions, we do know what the rates are, and that we, we have comparable rates of psychiatric illness when compared to North America and Europe and other countries. Um, but when you look but, at, but it shouldn't be. Do you know what I'm saying? Like what you were saying, um, it rings true. Mm. What you were saying about cultural and cultural mm. perceptions. So if anorexia and bulimia generally is being impacted by the media, you know, and this perception of how good it is to be thin, then in, in, on the African continent or in South Africa, where the perception is not about being thin, but about perhaps be, whether you're male or female, being a little bit more voluptuous, because then it shows that you're healthy and you're fertile and that you, you know, you possibly are not suffering uh, with a wasting disease, like you said, uh, you know, HIV AIDS. The perception towards being thin is not on the same footing as it is in Europe. Yes. So, so it's so weird that that our data mm. is based on what's in Europe, and it's so similar. 
Well, with regards to eating disorders, which we we are lacking um, our epidemiological studies and prevalence rates. With so what I what I mentioned in terms of the the rates that we do have other psychiatric illnesses, with regards to eating disorders. There are differences. Some of those differences are also based on socioeconomic status. So traditionally, anorexia nervosa was an illness of um, a young adult, white female of a upper middle class Western family. And today, and and it's not as firmly held in terms of socioeconomic. Status. Um, well, we're seeing the Westernization. It's the influence. Of South Africa, and that's one of our challenges. It's the influence of Western <coughs> beliefs and yeah. values, yeah. replacing some of your own values of your own culture. And therein lies the tragedy. Yeah. And and that's what's going to predispose you to developing an eating disorder or symptoms of an eating disorder. This is so interesting. This really is the the human mind. You know, it is so deep and so vast. You could spend your whole life learning just one thing about it. It's, it's absolutely fascinating. If you've got any questions, if you want to weigh in on the discussion, then this is how you do it. You can send a text to 34519. You can also WhatsApp on 062-148-2374. My guest is Dr. Savani Partha, and uh, she's from the Akiso Clinics. We're talking about eating disorders and really getting to the bottom of understanding orexia and anorexia and bulimia. Any questions, any comments, love to hear from you. Get in touch, join the conversation. When we come back, I want to know what if there's a common personality type that is susceptible to either anorexia or bulimia. Stay with us. Medical Monday is proudly brought to you with the compliments of Discam. Pharmacists to care. Thank you so much uh, for joining me. My name is Kathy Kayla, and uh, this is the Discam Medical Monday. I'm speaking to Dr. Savani Partha. She is a she is a psychiatrist. You are a psychiatrist. Yes, a child and adolescent psychiatrist. Child as and well. adolescent <laughs> psychiatrist. I knew it was a special kind of psychiatrist uh, at the Kiso Clinics, and uh, we're talking about anorexia and bulimia, eating disorders, and these are actually. From what I'm understanding, you know, as South Africa becomes more and more influenced by Western culture uh, and we kind of leave our own cultures behind, it's, uh, there's something so tragic in that because our values change. And while it's not necessarily a bad thing for values to change and evolve and grow as you do and as your knowledge and your wisdom grows – it's not always ideal when there are the flip side of the coin is that you're being influenced by Western values where, you know, it's a, it's a value to be, to be thin rather than being healthy. Mm. I asked you just before uh, we went to break about personality types. Is there a personality type that is more prone to anorexia and bulimia? Most definitely. We'll start with anorexia nervosa. Um, the kind of personality profile um, of, a pe- of a person that will develop is at risk of developing anorexia nervosa is a very rigid individual, perfectionistic, very hard on themselves. So your type A driver personality. Well, 
when in terms of psychiatry, psychiatry, yes, type A, but also what we would call a, a cluster C, which is a very dependent and avoidant individual. So avoidant, avoid the, the kind of person who avoids new things, not the adventurous sort. So harm oh. avoidance, very scared. And, and that's where the control comes into play. So not the impulsive person. The impulsive individual will be more prone to bulimia. But the anorexic is often an obsessive compulsive personality type, that kind of individual, very rigid. Um, the bulimic is often an impulsive individual. And if you look at personality traits, the kind of personality trait where the sense of self is not very well established, coping mechanisms are not very well established either. And so often with the binges, there's this lack of control or a sense of not being in control and powerlessness. Um, so there's a very distinct difference between the kind of personality types. But anorexics often slip into bulimia as well, depending on when they've sometimes lost that very rigid control over the weight loss and gain a bit of weight and then indulge more in the binge purge behaviors, which will make the weight increase. They, they do slip between anorexia and bulimia. Sometimes they go back to being very thin. And it's really the kind of thinking around food that is just so distorted, which contributes to, to moves between eating disorders, as opposed to often being cured and being in remission. And so it's often a long process. Not that one can't go into remission. Um, but this is often what happens in the course of the illness. So what I'm hearing is that your anorexic type personality is very prone to neuroses. Mm -hmm. Very, very nervous, jittery, but, but very, very controlling. Yes. To and, and possibly off, fearful. Very fearful. To stave off the anxiety that comes with this no, sense of not being in control, not con being in control of their lives, not being necessarily able to make all the decisions pertaining to their lives. And that sometimes comes from the, the family setup where we see, especially with anorexics, a very what we refer to as an enmeshed relationship within the family. So the boundaries within the family are not often clear. And if you look at the relationship between patient and mother, those are often very enmeshed relationships. And so the the young adolescent, the, the anorexic then attempts to gain some control in their lives with decision-making in the only area that they feel they can, which is with food and what they put into their mouths and what they're eating. Could a trauma bring on anorexia? It, it could. However, we find that with bulimics, there are there's a higher rate of early life trauma, sexual abuse, physical abuse, um, poor attachment. So that sense of self is not as um, firmly established. But there, there can be a early childhood trauma in the anorexic population as well. Yeah, it's absolutely fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. Um, dysmorphia. That's uh, somebody's, when they look at themselves in the mirror, they don't see what's really there. They see themselves differently and often in a very negative way. So an anorexic looking at themselves in the mirror um, who's got dysmorphia will see themselves as overweight. Is that correct? 
Uh, with an anorexic, it goes a little bit beyond dysmorphia, but we have to make sure that we have not overlooked uh, a body um, dysmorphia as well. So that's they're not fixated. When when individuals have um, dysmorphia, they're obsessed with a certain part of their bodies, perhaps their nose or their lips or their eyes, that they feel is not normal, whether it's too big or small, the shape. With an anorexic, it's the entire body, the whole bo- the body size, shape. Um, they can also have, um, they can also then have cognitive distortions with regards to a specific feature. So their ears might appear to be too big as well, but it's a generalized, distorted view of the whole body. So not just a specific area. So it's it's not that. I think my tummy is big and should be flatter. It's the entire body. If they don't see protruding bones, which isn't normal, which isn't healthy, they feel that they could that, that they're not actually thin. How do you know if it's life threatening? Well, it depends. If you've got a friend, mm-hmm. um, a colleague, somebody that you know, and uh, you're listening to this to this uh, to what you're saying, and you're checking off all the different boxes, either for bulimia or anorexia, and uh, you want to intervene. How do you know when you should? Well, the earlier um, the earlier the, the patient get, re- receives help, the better. So we often find that our younger patients, even though they have a very early age of onset of illness, will do better than someone who's had the illness for a long time but only then receives treatment maybe a few years down the line. They they do you do better with your younger patient. With we'll start with anorexia. It's always easier to start with anorexia. Um depending on the degree of weight loss. So Previously, we looked at a certain percentage. We don't look at the, the percentage anymore, but it's really what we refer to as um, a weight in terms of height, which is a body mass index. If we only looked at the weight, now people are different heights, so a weight for someone who is shorter is not appropriate. The same weight for someone who is taller, so someone might you have it's might gotta have be, it's got to be. A ratio. Yes, and that's what the BMI is. It's a ratio of your weight to your height. Yeah, body mass index. Body mass index. So with an anorexic, there's a refusal to maintain a body mass index which is healthy. So a healthy body mass index will be above 17.5. It's between 17.5 and 24.9. So their refusal to... Maintain that body mass index is really the crux of the illness. And depending on what their BMI is, we can then determine what the severity of the anorexia is depending on the weight loss. But if at home, no one's going to measure a BMI. You might not even know the weight of the patient, but you can see. It's a whole calculation that you have to do. Exactly. But you could see that someone's lost a large amount of weight in a short period of time, which goes beyond dieting. If you're slightly overweight and you want to be a normal weight, so you go on a diet and you lose a certain amount of weight, but then you stop. With anorexia, you won't stop. You'll continue until you're really underweight. And you'll try to hide it and you will make no attempt to actually regain even a small amount of weight towards getting to a, a healthier, normal weight. It's very secretive as well because 
it's very hard for them to let go of the eating disorder. So intervention has to be in a very in a very gentle way because they're so resistant. But it's the weight loss that will be the most obvious, um, and the behaviour around not wanting to eat, a change in eating behaviour. So it's going from eating a normal diet to very rigid ideas about what to eat, very small portions and being very rigid about it, very all or nothing. And that's part of the the control and trying to be in control of exactly what I'm going to eat down to the last calorie. Calorie counting is a huge part of anorexia nervosa, weighing themselves and being obsessed with numbers. This is what happens with the individual because what happens is that the eating disorder becomes their lives. There is no space or room or time for anything else. So they stop doing things that they used to do before and they don't have the energy to do it either. And so all areas of life will be impacted on, whether you're at school or university, your social life, your family life, all of those areas will be impacted on. And so it's very quick in the course of the illness to get from starting to lose weight to actually being severely impaired. So family members, friends of these individuals need to to make an attempt very as soon as they think that there's something wrong with this person. This is not normal dieting. This goes beyond just needing to lose a small amount of weight, especially if there actually wasn't a need to lose weight in the first place, but that the idea of being thin is to be extremely thin because we're bombarded by images in the media all of the time of individuals that are celebrities that look perfect, but they're all airbrushed. If you if you look at the images that we find in magazines, online, on TV, it, it doesn't look... It doesn't look real because it's not. Yeah, so thanks, Dolce & Gabbana. So you're pursuing something that actually doesn't exist in the first place, yeah. which is why they go to these extremes. It's true. I mean, thank goodness. I mean, thank goodness fashion has moved away from that whole, what is it called? Heroin chic. Are you kidding me? The androgynous We thought chic. that that was chic? Who thought that was chic? But that was a movement for a very, very long time. It's still there. It's still quite a way to go within the fashion industry. I actually saw Paris Fashion Week. Two weeks ago, they issued a statement that they will no longer be employing, as as runway models, um, women who are underweight, which I think is is amazing. It's a huge step in the right direction. It's taken a long enough time. It is, because the trend always was to have someone who was underweight, but severely underweight because they couldn't actually get into the clothing if they weren't a size zero, zero. An SMS unsigned, unfortunately, says, what about orthorexia? We have another one, orthorexia. So I quickly went and I looked it up because <laughs> that's what I do. Um, so orthorexia is a term for a condition. This is the official uh, dictionary definition. Is the term for a condition that includes symptoms of obsessive behavior in pursuit of a healthy diet. Orthorexia sufferers often display signs and symptoms of anxiety disorders that frequently co-occur with anorexia nervosa and other eating disorders, which is probably why it's not its own eating disorder, right? Mm-hmm. Because it's either going to be part, it's going to be part of or component of anorexia, bulimia or another eating disorder. Yes. So the category of eating disorders, the larger component in terms of what we're aware of, and we've heard the term anorexia or bulimia, some 
individuals won't necessarily because we've previously had very rigid um, criteria to that that an individual has to meet. Um, so we would refer to the the ones that don't strictly uh, fall into either category as an eating disorder, not elsewhere categorized, but it is an eating disorder. And the severity of those, um, the pathology in those individuals is just as severe. So with orthorexia, even though it's not categorized as an eating disorder, how that sprung up is we have now a society that is very much aware of what we're eating, what we're purchasing, what's available to us in the stores. People are doing their research. And because we have such high rates of um, people being overweight and obese and people and individuals wanting to live a healthier lifestyle, often people then become quite obsessed about what it is they're eating. Um, is it organic? Um, what is the amount of calorie? And so that can take up a large amount of time, especially with someone who is prone to becoming anxious. And it then they, they then go overboard. There are lots of diets that we're also being told um, could be better for ourselves. So you've heard of the Mediterranean diet. You've heard no. of low-carb diet. <laughs> I haven't. <laughs> low-carb, no-fat diet. You've uh, heard of Atkins. You've heard of... Um, um, all, these, no, all of these, yeah. all of these diets. That there's lots of controversy in terms of what it is we're meant to be cutting out. Can we actually abide to some of these diets that are really so strict? Where if you're not actually following the diet and you're eating, a, sneaking in something that's just a, a complete no-no. People these days do often speak to dietitians as well. So, and a dietitian might either come up with an eating plan that pertains to you, the individual, looking at your rate of metabolism, the kind of lifestyle you live, your age, any medical conditions you have, food allergies, or they might suggest following a diet that many people are following um, because there might or might not be evidence, an evidence base for it. So you have to look at these things and you have to take these things with a pinch of salt, really. What is the relationship between um, anorexia and bulimia and other disorders, for example, OCD or anxiety disorder or, you know, any other psychiatric mm -hmm. disorders, depression? You know, is there a relationship? There is. So if we look at anorexia and um, nervosa, there, there's often... Symptoms that occur within the course of the eating disorder um, that are very similar to symptoms of a major depressive disorder. And if you think about it, that does make a lot of sense. Why do diets not work if, you, if you've ever been on a diet? Because if you stay on them, they do. Right? <laughs> okay. Well, they don't work if you're only, you know, staying you're only on hard. them for five minutes. Exactly, depending on the kind of diet it is and depending <laughs> on what kind of, um, I mean, that that's the thing with diet. It's a multi-billion dollar industry because it's really hard to go on a diet, especially if you're not changing other aspects of your life and you want to lose weight just by cutting down calories and cutting out large chunks of or areas of food groups that, Really, you we should be eating. We should have a, a balanced diet. But now because your goal is to lose the weight, you're going to cut all of these things out. So it's not fun. It's not fun at all. People who go on diets are often miserable because 
one, they can't eat the things that they want to. They're not getting enough nutrients in. So you do feel miserable being on a diet. When you're starving yourself, though, your body goes into fast really, mode. It's like fast. What so happens it stores is that, everything, right? Well, when you're starving yourself, you've got your body going into a state of panic. And you've got stress hormones that are being released at high um, at high rates. And that is what contributes often to the low mood that we often find with anorexics and the high levels of anxiety that's also found within the course of the eating disorder. Having said that, patients with eating disorders, including anorexia, are often prone to depression as well. And that part of that is with the kind of personality traits that put you at risk of developing anorexia. So the obsessive-compulsive personality type can then also develop a more severe anxiety problem with a generalized anxiety or an obsessive-compulsive type of anxiety. With a bulimic, they often often have a depression which might predate the bulimia or occurs in the course of the bulimia as well. And they, they need to be treated for both conditions. You cannot treat one condition without then addressing um, the other when they're comorbid. My guest is uh, Dr. Savani Partha. Uh, she is a she's a psychi- she's a psychiatrist at the Akiso Clinics. Uh, she specialises in adolescence, and child and adolescence, child mm-hmm. and adolescence. And we're talking about eating disorders. We're specifically focusing on anorexia and bulimia, which is more common than others, like uh, pica, which is when you eat chalk and ash and weird things or, uh, you know, other other eating disorders, as interesting as it may be. Um, if you've got any questions, if you've got a, if you want to weigh in on the conversation, please do so. 34519, that's how you do so. Or uh, 0621482374. Um, Dr. Partha, can we play the what-if game, right? So somebody has anorexia. It has gone unmonitored. For whatever reason, the family can't get involved. This person won't hear of it. As you said, very rigid personality types, very neurotic, highly strung. Uh, I mean, that's that's generally, and I am generalizing, but that was really the guidelines that you gave us in terms of the personality type. A typical type. Your typical type of personality um, who, who gets anorexia. So the family can't intervene. The person, say the person's uh, 50 years old, 60 years old, whatever the case may be. Um, What are the physical effects? Let's take it to the end, right? So uh, that person never has intervention. What are the health, what's going to happen to that person's health? Well, during the course of the illness, depending on the degree of weight loss. So at, at the start, you've, you start to lose a certain amount of weight. But towards the end, and maybe we can, we can even say the end stage, you've, you've already experienced quite a lot of the morbidity, so all the medical complications that go along with having anorexia. So with bulimia, you don't have the rates of mortality because of weight loss that you do with anorexia. You might have mortality because of whatever electrolyte imbalances or other medical complications. 
you um, might occur with bulimia. Remember, they have the self-induced vomiting very often, and you can actually have gastric or esophageal rupture as part of that, and that contributes, that can con- lead to death in a bulimic. With an anorexic, it's a, it's a slow starvation towards death. It's a slow suicide. So there's a whole spectrum of medical complications that they go through. So what will happen is that the body tries as much as possible to maintain homeostasis in light of someone not taking in essential nutrients. As the body starts to waste away, what happens is that these individuals towards the end stages actually can't function. So they can't get up. They've gone past the stage where they used to get up in order to burn calories because now there isn't even any energy in to allow them to actually get up. They become bedridden. So when there's insufficient energy, even actually keep yourself upright against gravity, they're, they're confined to their homes, to their beds, and it doesn't motivate them in, in any way to actually take in more nutrients. And you might have to then resort to, once they do end up in a hospital, a, a refeeding um, attempts, which is not orally so intravenous or nasogastric, in order to actually get some nutrients into them. But it's a slow, slow wasting. It's a slow death if you're not actually taking in food and nutrients to sustain you, to keep you alive, and you refuse to do so. So there's lots of different complications affecting different parts of the body because of the starvation, because of the refusal to actually eat. How could you intervene? What would you say to somebody, if it was one of your family members, what would you say to them? The first step is... Because is, you said they're very rigid personality mm-hmm. types, and because they are so resistant, you know, it's very difficult to, to have that intervention. What would you say? Exactly. The first step is to seek help. Um, and obviously the first, first prize is to get the individual to go along with you voluntarily because intervention works better for someone who is going to to some degree cooperate with you so going to your local doctor would be the first step or a a psychologist um in order for the individual to start the process of actually acknowledging that there is a problem because often they they refuse to do so We've had very extreme cases where because eating disorders are actually psychiatric conditions, patients can be admitted involuntarily into into a hospital that has um, an eating disorder unit because it's very specialized care involuntarily under the Mental Health Care Act. And that's in extreme cases where the individual is so resistant to receiving help, whether as an outpatient or as an inpatient, to even take the first step. And so it's getting them into a hospital, into a facility where they can start what we call the refeeding process once they are medically stabilized. And that's why it's really vital to have the, um, the input of a physician, a doctor who's going to monitor um, in the acute, st- in the early stage of treatment that the patient is actually physically stable. Um, that's the, a fear we have often with um, a, a patient who's just been admitted 
and we have to go very very slowly with the refeeding because their bodies have become so used to so being in, in the, the state. Auschwitz, uh, the people who survived Auschwitz, when the Allied forces went in, that's what happened. They started giving them all these foods, which were absolutely normal for for people who had been eating normally, but many, many, many of them died because their bodies just yes. couldn't process it. Um, so what happens is that you then have a cardiac arrest because your body has gotten used to the, le- the low levels of all nutrients and all of the magnesium and, and sodium, which is so essential to all of our selves functioning, if you then start introducing food in larger co- quantities, so you've got a huge shift from the level it was at in the starvation state to trying to normalize rapidly um, the diet. And, and that's what unfortunately happens. So that's why you have to go so slowly. When assessing um, somebody with either anorexia or bulimia, are they different stages according to which somebody is assessed. So for example, um, and I'm just going to use cancer as an example, right? So if there is, um, you know, a, a cancerous growth, right, on somebody's body and it hasn't spread to any of the organs and it's isolated, then it's stage one cancer, right? And and so as the cancer progresses, so you've got different stages all the way to stage from between stage Mm -hmm. one and stage four so are there stages of anorexia and are there stages of bulimia with anorexia it depends on the degree of weight loss so when we weigh them um it depends on what the bmi is below normal which will either give you a severe case of anorexia um, well starting off with a bmi that's closest to the normal end, the lower end of normal, which is 17.5, which will be a mild form of anorexia. Then you've got your moderate and your severe, and then you've got your extreme cases where you've got a very low BMI, often below. It's, those are the ones that where you're looking at a BMI that's really low. It's it's almost half of what a normal BMI is. Wow. Um, and so you want them, and, and the best outcome would be with someone with a milder case and has who has come in quite early in the stage of in the in the course of the disease the human mind is so complicated it's uh but it's fascinating all the same so uh yeah maybe you should come back again <laughs> you can explain something else to us <laughs> so uh, thank you very very much um i'm going to leave with this SMS that's come through that's actually quite funny it says uh, I'm depressed and fat how bad is that for double trouble I think that is in terrible taste that's triple trouble never mind <laughs> thank you so much uh, for that uh, for that message and to Dr. Savani Partha thank you very very much for coming in for just really explaining about anorexia bulimia it is very very involved uh, but interesting and uh, you know if you have somebody in your life who you suspect perhaps you know um is either an anorexic suffering with bulimia which is much harder to pick up or uh, you know just get hold of some support and find out how to deal with that person and and get the intervention because you know when uh, dr partha when you were saying that you know the person gets taken into hospital, you know, if, if it's life-threatening and very, very slowly fed and it's basically uh, intravenously, 
I can only imagine how difficult it is. The person stopped eating because they didn't have control. And now, because of what they've done to their bodies, any control that they had has been taken away. It just makes for a very, very difficult situation, and you're going to need support. So uh, either get hold of, you know, a psychiatrist, get hold of the Kiso clinics. They can put you onto somebody. And, uh, yeah, just only good things, people, only good things. Dr. Pather, thank you very, very much. Thank you for having me. You're <laughs> most welcome. Have a wonderful week, and, uh, yeah, we'll catch up another time. And to you, be safe. Be healthy, God bless, and I'll see you same place, same time next week. Bye. Medical Monday is proudly brought to you with the compliments of Discam, pharmacists who care.